So Corey Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand came out and said that they're not going to take super PAC corporate money, you know, in the future. And this is obviously just, you know, positioning for 2020 so they can look progressive. But what he went through is, so he went on opensecrets.org and on Open Secrets, they like break down where candidates get their funding. So they break it down as small donors, which is under $300, large donors, you know, which is between uh, $300 and $2,500, which is the maximum for an individual donor. And then corporate PAC money, which is obviously like super PACs are unlimited. It's for how much you can contribute. And the thing that interested me, now I obviously support getting rid of super PACs. In fact, I support like, you know, fully uh, publicly funded elections. Going to argue like the other point here because so even Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand, right? You know, these are like the biggest neoliberals, you know, you could think of, right? You know, somebody like Cory Booker specifically. You would think Cory Booker, oh, he must receive like hundreds of millions of dollars from like Goldman Sachs and shit. And I was actually surprised by how little money like he receives from corporate donors. Going to Cory Booker. That is actually surprising because Cory Booker is like considered the leader of like the pro-business wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah. So here are the actual numbers. So from 2013 to 2018, that's a five year period. 10 percent or 2.3 million came from small individual contributions. 72.84 percent came from large individual contributions, and that's 16.5 million. And then only 10.62% or 2.4 million came from super PACs. So really, he only got $2.4 million from super PACs. So even if we overturn Citizens United, that's only $2.4 million for like the biggest neoliberal in the party. It, It doesn't change very much, you know what I mean? While super PACs are a problem, Large individual contributions perhaps might be a bigger problem, or at least just as big of a problem, right? You know, what these uh, large uh, individual contributions are for the most part, oh, I'm going to hold a fundraiser, you know, in some swank apartment in New York City and invite a bunch of people from Goldman Sachs and charge them $2,500, which is the maximum, and then raise like a million dollars in an evening, you know, for like a dinner party or some shit. So that's 72% of where his money comes from, 73% almost. So I would say that even getting rid of Citizens United doesn't actually change anything. The solution, we don't even actually have to get rid of Citizens United because not that much money comes from super PACs. Lower the maximum individual contributions. That's the real key. The problem ultimately with getting rid of Citizens United is is that the Supreme Court and various other courts that uphold that essentially the reason why Citizens United is valid is it's a free speech issue. Sure. But that's what I'm saying. We don't have to get rid of Citizens United. It's not as big of a problem as people think. It's not politically practical to get rid of Citizens United. True. I don't think you really can do it. Like the courts will just, the courts have already made their decision where they're going to stand for at least the time period. So it doesn't even matter though, because super PACs, like like I'm showing, like they don't even donate that much. So what we do have to do is focus on the the large individual contributions. So if we had somebody run and say, oh, we're going to lower the maximum contribution that an individual can donate from $2,500 to like $500 or something like that. I think that would actually have a bigger effect on, you know, how politicians vote. I'm going to sound at um, the Student Action Summit for Turning Point. There's actually a group of people who were talking about term limits. They kind of broke down a lot, a good chunk of evidence. You can give people contracts, you can give people special favors in terms of allocating out tax money. 
And so what the Pete person said is that essentially the best way to fight actual corruption of where at like overspending on projects is to literally just have term limits. It has been shown empirically mm-hmm. that states that have term limits will have uh, lower spending. It's called pork. They'll engage in less pork barreling. And his argument also is not just they engage in less pork barreling, but then they have lower spending rates, which means they can have lower taxes. So if you want lower spending and lower taxes also, hmm. you'd support term limits. Which in that, that case actually was like, wow, I'm convinced. I wasn't necessarily, I was kind of like iffy on it. Like I wasn't one way or the other. So actually that really convinced me. I mean, I have mixed opinions about term limits because yeah, I hear what you're saying. And like, I'm not going to dispute that data. But in practice, I think term limits could come with some unforeseen problems. Like for example, there are power brokers, you know, who exist in the Senate and the House of Representatives, right? People who, who wield power and are able to really bring their party or maybe both parties together and we don't we don't really see that right as americans we don't we don't think about that but there are some really really effective senators and representatives yeah and just throughout history i just watched the movie uh lbj you know lbj's presidency and stuff and you know he was a guy who who was able to do that right because of his connections you know because he was in uh, congress for so long but yeah because he was you know the majority leader, uh, I think, yeah, because he was a majority leader and he had so many connections there, he was able to get civil rights passed because of that. And, you know, he was also able and to get, you know, a bunch of other legislation, key legislation passed during his term. And that's because he had so many connections and he was able to just influence and influence and influence. So if we have term limits, just hypothetically, you're not going to have that. Now, that may be a good thing in some areas because then you won't have as much corruption. You know, it could also be a bad thing because you'll just have a bunch of newbies in there who don't really know what they're doing. It's like good intentions and new people who aren't familiar with politics doesn't always lead to good results, right? Jimmy Carter is a great example of that, right? This great guy, you know, I, I have a huge amount of respect for Jimmy Carter. He thought he was going to come into Washington. He was new. He didn't have experience in D.C. Thought he was going to clean shit up. Didn't happen. You know, he obviously wasn't the most successful president. Having some people in Congress who have been there for several decades and know how shit works, that has advantages. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would agree with that argument. In this case, I'm willing to take some risk. Most people just serve to just be like a voting block. I don't actually support what I'm about to say, but effectively it works basically where we all just vote for a party list. We kind of just say like, okay, who do we want? And here's like a list of people and we just vote for the party. We don't really care about the local candidate. I wouldn't actually support a system like that because I think in the end it does matter. But effectively for a lot of decisions, just as basically how this party you're going to do whatever we tell you. Right. In the past, the party apparatus wasn't as strong as far as enforcing very specific views. Like I said, I was just watching the movie LBJ, right? And the Democratic Party was completely split. You know, you had Kennedy, John F. Kennedy on one side from Massachusetts, huge supporter of civil rights, super progressive. And then you had the Southern Democrats on the other side, right, who, you know, were fucking racists, who opposed civil rights, you know, at every turn. So these two wings of the Democratic Party on this major issue were allowed to exist back then. So what has changed now is the, uh, you know, the party bosses of both the Republicans and Democrats are really enforcing strict platforms that weren't there in the past. Now, this has a huge effect. And I would say it's mostly negative, right? We could talk about this. For a long time, because, you know, what's happened, you know, in the past, there was a lot more overlap. So, you know, Gallup has done these polls and, you know, some other organizations have done these polls. 
as far as looking at overlap, right? And in the past, you know, there would be perhaps 25% of Democrats who are more conservative than the average Republican and 25% of Republicans who are more liberal than the average Democrat. So like, there was a lot of overlap on the issues. But now, you know, the parties have become more extreme and we have lots of data to back this up. There's various websites that like aggregate position of politicians. I do believe they had um, like various institutes do various things like scorecards where they kind of show like where um, the politicians stack up. And it's usually when you look at those like scorecards of kind of like, okay, like where do the Democrats fall on this one issue and where the Republicans, it's usually pretty, well, I believe the NRA, it's pretty much all Republicans highly regard it where like most Democrats have basically pretty low rating. Mm-hmm. I think that was actually one of the digs that like Bernie Sanders, because he had something like, I don't know, like a D plus or something like that from the NRA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I guess the other thing I wanted to say before we move on to this issue, I guess, is back to the other issue. Perhaps maybe super PACs and money, even for rich people, maybe these things don't matter at all. So maybe even I'm just saying this is a possibility. Maybe if we got even if we got rid of super PACs, large uh, individual donations, we got rid of, let's say, all financing, right? All uh, private financing, all campaigns are publicly financed now. I'm going to propose that even if we did this, we actually wouldn't see that much shift. I would say that corporations have like have dominated our culture so much, and they've kind of, uh, I would just say, brainwashed you know the population, especially in the U.S., you know, to believe strongly in free market capitalism and to oppose anything that even looks a little bit like, you know, socialism. I have a slight criticism of what you said. I think that the actual, when it comes down to the actual issues, it's not necessarily that people are being brainwashed. The media, for example, is very overwhelmingly pro-Hillary Clinton last election. In that sense, the media was, I mean, it's almost like free campaign advertising, an entire media structure, which is basically to shame one type of voter. Think about all the money that would cost to have a massive campaign where you essentially mobilize nearly all the media to your defense and to shame the opposition. I mean, like a lot of like in countries, for, I'm not saying it's this extreme, but like a lot of times people say like oh, elections were complete frauds. Not necessarily if that the votes were frauds, but that the media was dispatched overwhelmingly to side with one type of political interest. And then no side of the other political interest given an affair here in the media. You can say whatever you want about Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, but in this case, that it is a very, very powerful force. They definitely came out very strongly in Clinton. I think that it just didn't matter this time, but usually it matters if you have the media mobilized. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. But one other thing I found, and I think this kind of illustrates the point I was trying to make pretty well. So I want to talk about, you know, France, you know, versus the U.S. So here's a law, here's a, uh, here's a paragraph from HuffPo. So by law, campaign expenses are subjected to a maximum ceiling, and spending in excess of that is illegal. It's a France. Uh, the state also subsidizes candidates. It gives about 8 million euros, half of the maximum amount of expenses allowed in the first round, to those who obtain more than 5% of the votes in the first round, and about 800,000 to those who uh, do not make the, the 5% cut. So French politicians are therefore not enslaved special interests or super PACs that they're in the U.S. Uh, televised political ads are banned. So now let's look at what happened, you know, in France in 2017. You know, what happened there was, you know, France is a country that's far more skeptical of capitalism in general than the U.S. is, right? You okay. know, I would say that France is, you know, very skeptical of capitalism, probably more skeptical than any other, uh, you know, Western country. But so I was just reading the other day about how outside of Paris, there are lots of towns still have communist mayors, right? You still have mayors from the Communist Party, which I thought was hilarious. 
France generally is going to be a more left-wing country than the U.S. Plus, they don't have corporate money just flooding candidates like they do in the U.S. So you would expect that left-wing candidates would do very well. But then let's look at the 2017 election there. The actual left-wing candidate only got 20% of the vote. He got a little less than 20% of the vote in the first round. And the second round turned out to be a fascist versus a neoliberal. A neoliberal who's probably even to the right of Hillary Clinton, or probably about where she is. I, he's the only um, leader of a Western country that, if you look at the political compass, would put him in the bottom right. He's closer to, like, Friedman or Hayek, actually. He's, like, a true neoliberal. If you talk about, like, Friedman and Hayek as the archetypical neoliberal, he's, like, basically there, if you look at his political compass. Yeah. So why is it that even if you take out corporate money, and even if we're in a pretty left-wing country, why is it that a left-wing candidate only gets 20% of the vote? His name is uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. I believe he only won, like, you know, even in Paris, he only won, like, one district, Saint-Saint-Denis, which is, like, basically the ghetto. So he, he did well with very poor people and with immigrants. But then outside of that, like, even in a very left-wing country, he just couldn't, you know, get many votes. And I think that's kind of incredible. So what that tells me is that even if the U.S. gets rid of all this corporate money, it's like it's not going to change that much. Uh, their Socialist Party. They just had, what was his name? Yeah, Holland. Basically, a lot of people have kind of turned against him because of kind of, they had like large things of a capital flight, for example, and really just a sluggish economy that was very much lagging behind a lot of other economies after the big like European crisis that happened a few years ago. And so people kind of blamed a lot of his left-wing policies of, like high taxes kind of like more going after businesses and kind of trying to regulate them as kind of the enemy. So I think that was the major reason of the resurgence in neoliberalism and also the surge in far-right politics. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you that, but I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, what do you think I, I followed Owen's presidency fairly closely, and I just, you know, he, he was such a... He, he turned into such a neoliberal disappointment, and approval rating plummeted as a result. I feel like Owan's presidency should have energized the far left more yeah. than uh, destroyed it. Just like, because well, he ran as a left-wing candidate, uh, you know, 75% proposed tax on the, on, uh, on the wealthy, etc. But he turned into nothing of the sort, just like many center-left candidates in Europe tend to do. So I, I feel like he should have energized the Mélenchon, you know, voters more. I don't know. I can see it both ways. I think he kind of failed both sides, I would say. Yeah. I mean, mm. I, of course, believe that left-wing policies usually lead to bad economies. So. Mm. Sweden, it's just terrible. <laughs> yeah, but Sweden's social capitalism. Yeah. It's like, I think the ideal system may just probably be neoliberal social capitalism. I can see that. There's no regulations or like very slim like regulations and slim kind of government involvement in the economy, but just have like social safety net. Yeah, as long as there's basic income, I'm fine with getting rid of so many regulations. Like, I, you know, like basic I income is basically invented by neoliberals. So <laughs> I know, but it's the one thing that you can get lefties like me on board for. Yeah. I'll, I'll go on with your neoliberal project as long as I get my fucking uh, check in the mail every month. <laughs> The ethno state, and we could probably make like 10 videos out of it because it's like I just find it like a super like rich topic that you could talk about in a lot of different angles. The way I look at it is so if you're going to create a white ethno state, most white people are not going to want to go there. They're not going to want to disrupt their lives. 
But let's say hypothetically that you got a few hundred thousand white people who are interested in something like this, which I think is possible. For some reason, the United States, like, let them have some land. So that's a possibility, right? But what I would say is, this would be my biggest question to the alt-right and to the ethno-state people. Why don't you just move to Maine or Montana or West Virginia? These are all 90-plus white states. And and there are many towns in those states that are 100% white. Probably not a brown elected official in sight. Why not just move there, right? You know, if you move to Montana or something, never have to see another brown person, the federal government isn't going to have a huge reach over you. You know, if you go buy a cabin up in Montana, let's say the alt-right they wanted to start a town in Montana. You know, they just bought up a bunch of buildings in a town or whatever, and they own the whole town, basically. Like, yeah, they're going to have to pay federal income taxes and stuff. But, like, other than that, the federal government isn't going to really do much. I mean, you a lot of libertarians have moved yeah. to New Hampshire, and they've basically created a right-wing enclave of libertarians. It's actually slowly become more and more red over the years, because the libertarians have specifically decided to move to New Hampshire. But wh- why does the alt-right then need an ethnostate if they can just do this? Poland is like 98% white and has an authoritarian right-wing government. Move to fucking Poland. <laughs> move to baseball. And- I mean, shit. Stop complaining. I mean, they're they're already like white ethnic. That's already a white ethnic state. It's literally a white ethnic state. And they literally keep people out. Or move to Iceland. The country has a very strongly merit-based immigration system. It's essentially all white. I think it's like one of the whitest countries. I believe you're right. Ninety-three percent are Icelandic citizens, and then like three percent are Polish. It's like basically all white. And then, like, yeah, some people from Lithuania and Denmark and Germany. Yeah, it's all white. <laughs> there it's might not even be, like, 100 brown people here. I can't even tell. Oh, yeah, here, okay, there are 200 Chinese people. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's it. Good. See, I just don't understand why they want... So this is what worries me about the alt-right and the ethno-state people. It's like, so there are already all of these options for them, and yet they keep trying to fight to make the U.S., or Britain, or France, a white ethnostate, right? So to me, it's, this seems more about authoritarian like control than it does about like being around other white people. This reminds me of an argument I get in with ANCOM. I like the United States how it is. Like, it's not really too bad here. I know you like to complain. Seriously, just get the fuck out and go to somewhere else. There's other countries you could probably do it. They literally just don't bother me about it. And it's like, no, we have just as much right to this country as you do. So we're going to fight it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll have to fight you then. Yeah. Uh, that's the problem with, with land. It's like land is so scarce. And even assuming a government does cede some of its land to you, it's not going to be resource rich, desirable land. So, like, I do kind of understand to an extent. But at the same point, land is becoming much less important. It's more about technology, right? Like Silicon Valley is in like a super small like part of the world, and yet it's the most important like few square miles of, on the entire planet as far as technology goes. So like you could take Iceland and create a Silicon Valley up there, and like you know who cares if it's cold and in the middle of nowhere? Here's the thing that they're missing though, because alternative hypothesis wants kind of a very like right wing authoritarian government. That's kind of what he envisions. Like would be the ideal of society. So if you look at 
places have been very successful just based on land. Like, look at Hong Kong. They basically did as they said, okay, people can do whatever the fuck they want. And the fact that they did almost no regulation, it became like almost a place where people can come and do business freely. Singapore pulled off the same basic thing that Hong Kong did. Now, if they go and form this other ethno state and they start European purism, kind of getting back to their roots and, and having an authoritarian state, Nobody's going to want to invest in that, so you're going to have a shitty piece of land. Nobody's going to be willing to put any resource into it, so you're just going to be poor. Well, I think they could actually be moderately successful, but yeah, they're never going to be super They're never going to be super rich. My suggestion for them would be, uh, well, you don't go to Iceland, probably, because people there are too liberal, right? You can't, you can't just take over a country where people are already liberal. So you find a conservative, majority white country, like Poland, so then you don't have to worry about any war or anything like that. You know, just go to just all these people move to Poland, right? And you get enough people like that who move to Poland, enough white alt-right people, and then the local population is already super conservative. And then you just keep voting, you know, for super conservative people. Uh, now, Poland's economy is fine. It's not great. Obviously, you know, Eastern Europe isn't as successful as Western Europe. And people in Eastern Europe are leaving Eastern Europe and going to Western Europe even though multiculturalism is supposedly scary and failing. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. But so if they all did this, just went to Poland like this, you know, the economy isn't, it's never going to be as successful because a lot of businesses are just going to boycott the country, right? Like if Poland becomes like the unofficial or official white ethno state, like a lot of businesses just aren't going to go there. You can be relatively isolationist and still relatively successful. You just have to produce things in your own country, which is what they want to do anyway. And the cost of goods is going to be high, but it's still doable. I mean, there are lots of examples of this. I don't think that's the end of the world. But, you know, it's going to be, it's never going to be like a super high GDP country. I also don't think they can really attract very intelligent people. Like, there's very intelligent people in the art, right? But I think ultimately those people are just not going to be that dedicated to move. It's kind of like the problem, like Sargon of Akkad brought up, where he's kind of just like, okay, so like, why aren't all these like alt-right, like trad thoughts, getting married, hooking up with like one of these like alt-right neats or whatever, uh, pumping out children or whatever. I don't think anybody who's really successful is really going to run to move there and just be poor. No, I, I mean, I agree. But still, even to have a, a moderately successful country, you don't need that many smart people. Like, if they just want to be like, moderately developed, you know, then they can have their white ethnic state in Poland. I think they should just go to Poland. It's already a developed country. They don't have to, like, build shit from scratch. Yeah, I think Poland's the answer. Although Russia might be another good answer. Base Poland. Yeah, true. It's already a meme, so it's got to be that one. But no, I, I think Russia's another good answer, too. The, I mean, Russia has its ethnic conflicts, but if you live in, you know, Moscow or whatever, it's almost completely white. But, but this brings up a super important point. And I think this is probably, like, this deserves a video on it, on its own. Okay. Poland is, like, 99% white. I, it, it might be over not, it might be over 99% white, but it's at least 99% white. Okay. Why isn't Poland the most successful country in the world? Why, why isn't Poland, like, fucking Silicon Valley on steroids? If diversity and multiculturalism are so bad, why is London, why is New York, San Francisco, why are these, like, the most successful sought-after cities in the world. And like you mentioned before, Hong Kong and, and Singapore. Why, why are these the greatest places to live in the world? Why does New York City have a super low crime rate? 
why is all this foreign money pouring into London and New York, for that matter? Why are all the tech startups in Silicon Valley? Why are they not in fucking Poland? If white people are so smart and, uh, you know, create such great civilized societies, why is Poland just average? Well, you see, I've, once upon a time, the cities were white and they were built, you know, they were the greatest white cities around. But now they're just on decline because, you know, they invite, eventually, eventually Poland will exceed them because only in recent history have just seen those cities completely just go down the shat. They're only getting worse and worse but year by year. Poland, we just see it skyrocketing to the top, obviously. So you mean how New York City crime rates, especially the murder rate, seems to be declining every single year? No, it's, now, it's, uh, going, it's going up now, you know, because it's just oh, getting yeah, worse because yeah. all the brown people. It, yeah, New York City, the crime rate went up for what it did go. It actually did go up in like 2016 versus 2015, but not much. And it was it went down like this. I mean, maybe the brown people are playing nice now, but eventually the brown people will start doing all the crime again. Yeah, what what empirical evidence do they have to show that? Yeah. Uh, Look at Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. I I say that's not as economically successful. I'll agree with that. It's New York. But the point is, when uh, when you have an economically successful place with high average and median incomes and shit, works for brown people, works for white people, works for everybody, the crime rate's lower, and everything's great. That's why New York and London are doing so fucking well. 